Studios in downtown Little Rock. This is Capital View. And good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Capital View. I'm Jay Burr. The Arkansas House will meet Friday to consider whether to remove a lawmaker who pleaded no contest to not paying state income taxes. Representative Mickey Gates was arrested last year and charged with not filing returns from 2012 to 2017. In September, House Speaker Matthew Shepard filed the resolution seeking Gates removal, which will require a two-thirds support of the majority GOP House. And here to weigh in on the upcoming meeting here, we've got State Representatives Frederick Love, John Payton, and Jack Fortner. Gentlemen, thanks for coming in here. Let's get right to this here. Um, we, we were kind of pre-gaming here, and, and this is going to be an interesting procedure just in and of itself, let alone with the facts and, and disputing all that. But what's the actual process here that we've got to get through with this thing? Well, I'll tell you. Yeah, I, so, uh, you know, after hearing that we were going to take this procedure forward, it's a, it's a very... Uh, major undertaking when you right. when you're going to consider removing the people's representative so uh, there are some sections of Arkansas code that that uh, set forth a procedure it's 7-5-805 uh, and it spells out that uh, proceedings could take place in the Arkansas Claims Commission where there would actually be a hearing of the facts and then a non-binding recommendation handed to the house in this case it seems that we're not following that step but that there's been a resolution by the speaker filed which upon the vote of two thirds would expel a representative. Now, does it get a little tricky in there with, with kind of, and I know we were talking earlier, something says one thing in the constitution, it kind of says a different thing on statute. Uh, so how do we kind of approach some of that? Well, I, I will say this. First of all, we, we did set, set, uh, set forth the process in which the speaker's take. Right. And so he's filed his resolution, and so now we must act on that resolution. And then if it's two thirds, the, the body feels that two thirds or the two-thirds of the body mm -hmm. feel that Representative Gates needs to be expelled, then that's what we'll do. But I mean, so um, what Representative Payton brings up is, is interesting, but we have set forth a process, and so we're taking that process. So I, I guess, Representative Ford, you can jump in on here on this. What, what exactly is the process? Is this sort of like uh, trial of peers, or, or kind of what's the actual you know, dealings that we're going to be, be seeing? As I understand it, uh, we as the representatives are elected by our constituents. Uh -huh. We are one of the only bodies, if not the only elected official in the state that cannot be appointed. If we have a vacancy, we have to be re-elected. Someone in our district has to vote. All those people have to vote to put you back in. So this is not something to take lightly because we are the people's representative. However, I assure you, that if anybody has researched something thoroughly and has crossed his T's and dotted his I's and checked with everybody checkable, it is Speaker of the House Shepherd. And I, I have utmost confidence in him, and, it, and it's, this isn't a lemming jumping off a cliff. Right. Mm. I have checked and I've researched, but I don't have the expertise that he or his legal team or the state's legal team has at their disposal. And some things you have to take and go with it. Mm -hmm. And as Representative Love has said, this procedure has started. We are obligated to carry this procedure through to its end. Right. Now, what Representative Payton has said is, is accurate. It is there. But I think we have passed that step, I think. Now, should we have? That's not what I'm debating right now. Right. What I'm debating is what we need to do Friday. 
Well, now, I'm curious as to how we got past that step because we've had no meetings, we've had no caucus, there's been no rules considered that would set forth a procedure. Right. All that has happened is a resolution has been filed by the speaker. Now, I was contacted by members of the speaker's staff who said uh, we find nothing in Arkansas code as to how to deal with this. Well, maybe they honestly missed what was in the code, but obviously this has been in the code for 20 or 30 years, and it says that it, that it could be sent to the Claims Commission. We, the House as a body has the authority. There's no doubt the Constitution gives us the authority to do this, but removing a member is a serious undertaking. Yeah. And if I'm going to be asked to do that, I've got to know the facts on both sides of the case. Uh, I'm not just going to go by the, by the plea bargain or whatever happened. I want to know the facts if I'm going to vote to remove him. So, so let's go to the facts because the, the fact is, is that we passed Act 894, which states uh, in statute that if a member pleads nola contendere, then they're subject to the statute that we passed. And so therefore, this is why the speaker has, take this, uh, has taken this process. I mean, even if, even if I was to break the public's trust and I pled nola contendere to, to, to something, I admittedly, under this, uh, under this statute, know the, the penalties of that. Representative Gates even voted for Act 8, 894, so I don't think there, there it's, a, it's a, a question of, of the process. Right. I think it's a question of do we uphold the laws that we have enacted. We, no one is above the law, regardless of the fact that they, that they plead no to contendere. This is the law that we established in the 92nd General Assembly, and so we should move forward. And I think the speaker is, is, is actually moving forward on this. Whether the body removes Mickey Gates or not is another question. But the process has been set, and we must carry out the process. But does that nolo contendere, does that, that plea kind of change the game? Because uh, that's sort of one of those little gray areas, you know, it's not necessarily an admission of guilt, but it, I, I could understand where somebody might think like, oh yeah, I mean, why you wouldn't fight it if you weren't guilty, kind of a thing. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna weigh in on that because sure. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a state representative. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, you just I'm set a, the well, tone here. <laughs> I was waiting for the chance to say I'm not a lawyer, but I play one in Little Rock. <laughs> so, but, but the fact of the matter is, though, is, is the process. I mean, is, is in Act 894, and we're just moving through that process. And so, I think um, we should take it up on October the 11th, and. and um, the See merits, how it plays the out. The merits are going to play out. Now, now let's kind of look down the road here. And, and I know you, uh, Representative Fortney, you mentioned vacating that seat and you have to reelect somebody. When theoretically would that happen? Would that just be, uh, would that be in a special election called, or or how how would that work out if if he is removed? It could be a special election that the governor would call at any time. Okay. Probably to save money for the people of Arkansas it would be uh, included in an election that we're going to have. Sure. So, so I, that, that I, could be a pro or like a time span in between or just? My first term, I came in on a special election. Uh, there was an individual that uh, resigned mm -hmm. and uh, I waited. I actually fulfilled the position without authority for a period of time. And then I was elected by the people at the regular election and was sworn in to be a part of that body at that time. So that's that's how the procedure will work. It, it could be to the day after we vote, mm -hmm. but uh, I doubt the governor's gonna call a special election uh, to fill that term immediately. 
And, and how long are we talking about with this procedure? Is this going to be just a one-day shot, or, mm -hmm. or you know, just kind of give uh, our audience kind of an idea of how long are we it'll guesstimating this we'll thing? We'll vote on it Friday, and it'll be done. So one day, one hit. There, there will be. A, there's an appeal process. There's a lot of things that can happen after that. But right. It is done at that point. All right. So uh, again, plenty to talk about here. Um, and again, it's just such a fascinating process here. Um, is is there a general vibe on on what's going to happen here, or or just we're going to wait to see how things play out. I, I would say we're going to probably wait to see how things play out. <clears throat> but um, let, let, me, let me go back to this. Uh, we passed a statute. Mm -hmm. So we, we, have, we have to ensure the public's trust in regards to carrying out this process. I mean, there, there's, not, there's no question on the process that must be carried out. And so I think that, as, as you know, we're going to go in on the 11th that mm -hmm. Friday and we're going to uh, hear both sides and then we're going to debate it and then we're going to come out. I think um, I think that's that's going to be that. That's just how it's going to well, be. Well, Representative Love just said something <coughs> that that's all I'm asking for. We're going to hear both sides. Right. And that's what has not been assured to me that we're going to hear both sides in the House. I'm not pushing that it should be heard in the Claims Commission or in the House. I'm just pushing that we should hear the merits of the case both sides. And uh, I'll be happy when that happens because, you know, right now I have limited information from one side, mm -hmm. which is the defense, and I have no information from the prosecution, which would be DF&A. And uh, even your lead up here in this segment said, you know, that he pled guilty for not paying taxes. And then it, the next paragraph no says, no says no he, he pled no contest. No contest <laughs> to... Uh, to not filing returns, which is more in lines with what Representative Gates has told me, he was filing his returns in the wrong place because he had been told by DFNA to file them with the audit division, and he continued to do that for years subsequent mm -hmm. to the audit, and that was a mistake that they were supposed to be filed with DFNA, but the audit division is still DFNA. So, I mean, you know, there's some twists and turns here. I don't know whether to believe him or not, and right. I'm more than willing to listen to both sides. Should be, it should be fascinating uh, to, to watch it play out uh, come Friday. Gentlemen, we appreciate you, you coming in here, kind of breaking this down for us here. And just for our audience, we did reach out to Representative Mickey Gates to appear on the show. He declined, however, per his attorney's advice. So there you go. All right, coming up after a quick break, we will talk about the impact of the proposal of local control given back to LRSD and a new grades report. You're watching Capitol View Sunday morning. You're watching Capital View, Sunday morning talk focused on the political scene in Arkansas. And welcome back to Capital View. In September, the State Board of Education proposed creating a nine-member local school board after an election. Each school will be put into a category which will dictate how much power the board has. Last Friday, school grades released revealed eight schools with an F. Teresa Gordon with the Little Rock Education Association joins us now to talk about just all this Little Rock School District stuff. And uh, Teresa, we, we appreciate you coming in here. Let's get right to it here. Um, I, I guess from the LREA standpoint, what you guys don't really seem to be in favor of what the state board proposed. Why is that? Well, the state board proposed several things. Right. Um, the, one of the things that they proposed was a framework or a resegregation plan um, for return of local control to some schools. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other motion that was made at that same meeting was to um, discontinue the recognition of our association. 
No, yeah, no, that's a big sticking point with you guys, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, with all the, the grades being released uh, here recently, it seems like not a lot has actually changed in the, in the big scope of things. Um, would we, we I, I guess my big question would be, is what would local control do to kind of change things? Because, you know, they, they, we had a, a several failing schools beforehand, still kind of have those failing schools. What would change under local control? Well, you have to remember that that term, um, it really defines poverty, a poverty situa situation. Mm -hmm. And you can look at those schools with the F designation and they are going to be high poverty schools located in high poverty neighborhoods mm -hmm. with the majority of the children attending them being in high poverty. Right. And um, so whenever you talk about improving the schools, the first thing you have to address is that situation. Right. Um, I, the educators in Little Rock School District have continually worked to um, to help students achieve in spite of the state control. And you know we have the LREA has served as as a buffer between right. the chaos that has been state takeover and our children. And you know. The LREA advocates for our students and for best practices with our students. We put forth a plan actually um, to the state board and it has been pretty much dismissed and ignored. Uh, you mentioned poverty as being kind of one of those big key factors with all those schools with failing grades. I, I mean, is this really a situation where something can be done at least when it comes to an, an admin standpoint? It just seems like you mentioned poverty. It's like that's something that's kind of beyond the control of whomever has control over the uh, the district. You're right. It is beyond control, but beyond the control of whomever has the district, um, which is why it's so hard to fix. And um, you know, our goal is to support our students mm -hmm. and to provide the resources that they need to ensure that they are in the best situation possible for them to learn and and to be successful. And what has happened is that those schools of poverty have not received the resources that they need. Even under state control, they have not received the resources. And, um, you know, that indicates to me and to, and to the educators of Little Rock that state um, control has failed our students. So w what would change with it from being a local? Because it, it was kind of a, I don't want to say a mess, but, you know, there was a reason they got taken over to begin with. And, you know, if, if things really haven't changed a lot, like you mentioned, under state control, what can the local level do to kind of fix that problem as, as best they can, obviously with those circumstances kind of beyond the control? Well, our students need investment and support. They don't need neglect and disparity. And under state control, we have been neglected and our students in those high poverty schools have been treated differently than the, the students in the other schools. The state has failed to provide support to those students of most need. You know, the state has been in control for four and a half years, and like you said, nothing has changed. In fact, um, the situation, because of the state being in control and cutting um, the budget, it has actually taken resources away from those students of most need. And so we have, we have cut positions, we have cut days, mm -hmm. we have cut um, resources like counselors and library media specialists and um, you know, new textbooks and, and we haven't provided uh, new classrooms with up-to-date um, equipment and materials and 
that all of those things contribute to the success of students. Well, it's definitely something that we could talk probably two shows worth Most about. Most definitely, Absolutely, yes. but, uh, but our time is up here. Uh, we do appreciate you coming in here. Uh, we'll, we'll probably try to get you back in here once things are a little more concrete. <laughs> what do you say? We'll see. All right. We appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you. When we come back, we take a look at your top headlines. You're watching Capital View on Sunday morning. You're watching Capital View, Sunday morning talk focused on the political scene in Arkansas. Welcome back to Capital View. On Thursday, President Trump signed an executive order saying he will expand Medicare benefits for seniors. The president says the plan will give seniors access to new technology like telehealth, lower costs, and that the expansion is important to protect Medicare benefits that he says are under attack by Democrats, but policy experts disagree. We are making your Medicare even better and we're not letting anyone, it will never be taken away from you. That's crazy political talk that's coming from the White House. Right now, about a third of Medicare recipients are enrolled in Medicare option, Medicare Advantage option. The administration says with added benefits, they expect that number to rise. Healthcare continues to be a top issue among voters ahead of the 2020 election. Even though Congress is on recess, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who also chairs the House Intelligence Committee, held a news conference to give an impeachment inquiry update. The plan to subpoena the White House for documents related to Ukraine if the White House won't hand them over. A White House transcript confirms Trump phoned Ukraine's president and asked for a favor, which was help investigating Joe Biden and his son. Pelosi says that appears to be an abuse of power, and the president fired back. And this president of the United States is stooping to a level that is beneath the dignity of the Constitution of the United States. All they want to do is try and win the election in 2020, so they come up with this impeachment nonsense. After the president withheld millions of dollars in aid for Ukraine, a White House transcript confirms he phoned Ukraine's president, did ask for that help in investigating Biden and his son. Biden says he communicated with his son, Hunter, about the harsh allegations President Trump is leveling against both men. Mr. Trump called the former vice president and his son, quote, stone cold crooked. Biden added that he's surprised at President Trump's actions during that phone call with the Ukraine's president. On the campaign trail, Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren says the House is acting appropriately with the in impeachment inquiry. I believe the Trump show is getting old and that fewer and fewer people are listening to him and fewer and fewer people are persuaded. But I think the way we do that is less about cutting him off and more about showing some real leadership on our side. Bernie Sanders' wife says her husband is recovering and excited to get back on the campaign trail. Sanders was hospitalized with a blocked artery and had two stints put in after experiencing chest pains at a closed-door fundraiser in Las Vegas last Monday. On Thursday, his campaign released a statement from his wife, Jill. She says there's been no need for additional procedures and that Sanders is, quote, ready to get back out there, end quote, and is looking forward to the October debate. Rally songs are becoming as much a part of the presidential campaign as the speeches. Washington correspondent Kelly Myers breaks down the historical meaning behind it all. We spend Music can change a campaign rally from this to this. All with a little help from John Lennon's Power to the People. It's a tactic that's been used by politicians for generations. It goes back really to the 1840s, the writing of original campaign songs. Lauren Kajikawa studies the musical soundtrack for candidates throughout history here at George Washington University in D.C. 
Memorable jingles like these helped lead candidate after candidate into the White House. But as Americans' music tastes changed, so did the campaign soundtrack. I think political strategists started to realize that they could rely on existing popular music that would um, embody some of the values. Now artists like Tom Petty to Stevie Wonder get featured by candidates hoping to form an emotional bond with their voters. From Elizabeth Warren using Dolly Parton's hit 9 to 5 to Beto O'Rourke's love for punk rock. 2020 Democratic candidates' playlists are unique as ever. It's kind of an, an index of identity. Kachikawa says the one thing that hasn't changed over the years is the strategy behind it all. Former Vice President Biden, his playlist is evenly split between black and white artists, and Kamala Harris's playlist is much more, it's, it's the most, I think, um, African-American artist um, of any of the other candidates in the field right now. Music remains an unwavering part of the American campaign, and that tune isn't changing anytime soon. Reporting in Washington, I'm Kelly Meyer. I'd probably go with 50 cents if I can't myself. We're back to wrap it up after this. You're watching Capital View Sunday morning. We're watching Capital View Sunday morning talk focused on the political scene in Arkansas. And that is it for this week's show. We're back with an all new Capital View next week. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.